0: And our text is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. Genesis chapter 2, very beginning of your Bible, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made up, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Ask for the Lord's help. Lord, enlighten our hearts to understand your word. You've given us your word to interpret your word, to understand your word, and you've given us your spirit to so help us, Lord, as we seek understanding from you and from you alone. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Genesis 1, uh, as we've been studying, begins, we saw at the very, very beginning, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, begins with this really big, wide-angle picture. It is a a panoramic of the universe, if you could do that. And the point there is it's all made by God. So you see the big picture, everything, all made by God, and then the screen zooms in to our galaxy, all made by God, and then it zooms in further to our planet, made by God, and then it zooms in further until you get to one specific area of the earth the setting of the story that will unfold throughout the rest of Scripture. God created the universe, God created the earth, God filled creation, God made man to rule over creation, and now here we are, we're going to meet the man. The first man. Now whenever Moses in Genesis, we believe Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote Genesis, whenever Moses introduces a new storyline... In this book, involving people, whenever it involves people, he always does it with this little couplet. You see it here in in verse 4, these are the generations of, and then it'll be who it's the generations of, so these are generations of so-and-so in that day that such-and-such happened. That happens 10 times in Genesis. Genesis. We're going to see that phrasing again and again throughout the rest of Genesis. So here's our first one. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So that word generations there, generations of the heaven and the earth, that generations comes from the word Toledot in uh, in the Hebrew, and it has this sense of genealogy or offspring. So in in chapter 5, we'll get there in a... In, in a few weeks, we'll see this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then it reminds us where Adam comes from and then takes us down the line from Adam. And then in chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah. And he had these offspring, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in chapter 10, these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth, And we, and we get all of their offspring. And this happens 10 times over, as I said. That, that, that special number, get the complete number 10 times in Genesis all the way down through Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob and his 12 sons, particularly Judah. And then that sets, sets up the storyline of the rest of the Bible. And the purpose of these sayings, these generations statements, summary statements, the purpose is one is that it breaks up the book of Genesis in an understandable in, in, in way that, that the people could memorize But it also is meant to show God's continued faithfulness. What we're going to see, not just here in in chapter 2 and 3 and 4, but but later on, we're going to see, whenever we see that generations of, we're going to see God in his own mysterious way working through man and man's sin to accomplish God's foreordained purposes. We'll always see that when we see that these are the generations of. So this is the first one. Whenever you see that, though, as you're reading and studying, let that be a little signal to you, sort of a a flashing light, something important in redemptive history is about to happen. But also remember, it's just moving the story to the next phase. It's just good storytelling. So so here here we are, our first one. These are the generations of, and it relates to the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, that's not a person, is it? No. But before there was a man to speak of, God made the heavens and the earth, and we're about to see God bring the man from the earth. The man will be, in this generations of sense, he will be the offspring of the earth. But before we get to that, and that's really the rest of the the text this morning, but before we get to there, I want to show you something really important And really subtle in this verse, in verse 4. And you might not have seen it. uh, By way of comparison, I want you to just think back to to chapter 1. In the introduction to Genesis, in those first seven days, days 1 through 7, whenever we saw the word God, or God spoken of, it was simply God, or Elohim in the Hebrew. And we saw that 35 times. There's another special number, 7 times 5. We saw that 35 times. In chapter 1, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, and God said, and God saw, and God rested. It was always God, that word, alone, doing the thing. And the idea throughout chapter 1 is not that it's written by a different author, and it's talking about a different God. That's bogus. There's stronger words, but that's that's not true. The idea throughout chapter 1 is that there is only one God. He is God over all. God's sovereignty and power and uniqueness were the emphasis, the focus of chapter 1. But what we're about to see, and what's being introduced for us here in verse 4, is that this God, the God over all creation, has a special relationship With the man. God Himself forms the man. He comes face to face with the man. He breathes life into the man. He plants a garden in which He will be present with the man. He abundantly provides all that is good and beautiful for the man. And He speaks to the man and He instructs him and He calls the man to obey Him. In other words, The all-powerful creator, the sovereign God of chapter 1, condescends in order to be a father to the man. He enters into relationship with the man that he has made king of his creation. And whenever we see this type of relationship developing in Scripture between God and man, the Holy Spirit in Scripture, always uses God's covenant name. In the Hebrew text, that's just four letters, what we transcribe as Y-H-W-H, and we don't know exactly how to pronounce that. Some people say Jehovah. Some people say Yahweh. I usually say Yahweh. But we do know this. We know that God has revealed that he's concerned about the the, uh, the profane use of his name, so out of reverence, our Bibles, most English Bibles, follow the old Jewish tradition, and we use four capitalized letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, to translate YHWH. So whenever you see that in your Bible, whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, know this. It is a translation of God's name. It's a translation of YHWH, Yahweh. And we see that for the very first time in all of Scripture here in verse 4. Look again at verse 4 so you don't miss it. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the... See that there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So The point here, it's subtle. I told you it's subtle, but it's massively important. The point is that God who made the heavens and the earth is the same God who will bring Adam from the earth and enter into relationship with him. It's a rough analogy. And so remember, analogies are only as strong as they're Analogy. But don't read much too much into this. So if, if this sounds like heresy to you, forgive me. All right. So, so think of, think about it this way: you might say, the builder built the house. The builder built the house. But when he signs his name on the contract, he doesn't write builder. Unless he's Bob the Builder. He, he doesn't write builder. Instead, he writes his name. It's 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 personal. For him. It's personal when he enters into an agreement with the person that he's built a house for. Right? So there's builder, who he is, and then his personal name, his contract name. That's similar to what's happening here. We can't get exact, okay? There's no way to speak exactly about God in this way. We can do it by analogy. And so here's my analogy. By analogy, God is not God's name. It is who he is, but the way he introduces himself to his friends is Yahweh. We see that in Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So from Genesis 2, 4, where we are right now, all the way through the rest of the Bible, whenever you see Lord written like that, see God as he relates to his people. God as he relates to his people. This is the beginning of that. So this is a really special time for us in Scripture. We are uncovering that. This is, a, this is momentous. Now we can move on to the next section. Now that you see that happening, verse 5 when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, just pause. I'm not going to complete the sentence. Pause here and look. Moses, led by the Spirit, is describing for us the details. We haven't gotten this in, in, in chapter 1, but here we're seeing the details of the conditions of the earth on day 6. Right. So day 6 is the day that God created man This is what things look like on that day. On day three, God brought forth the land from out of the sea, and he caused all sorts of different types of vegetation to spring up from the ground. We saw that uh, in chapter one. And and, and that vegetation that God caused to spring up was to be food for all the, the earth dwellers. Well, day six comes along. It's time to make the man. And what Moses is showing us is that the type of vegetation meant for humanity what he calls the bushes of the field and the small plants of the field well those plants haven't sprung up yet all right but i thought they did on day three but moses is saying they haven't yet the crops meant for human consumption haven't yet been cultivated and then moses tells us why look at verse 5. one well god hasn't yet sent the rain so whatever these are these are rain dependent crops and secondly God hasn't yet made man to work the ground. Hold on. Wasn't in Genesis 1, it said that God made all the plants for the man, and, and, and they were all there for his taking. They were there for him to eat. And it seems like the man and the woman were just supposed to eat it. But verse 5 tells us, no, 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 that's not how it was it corrects that assumption look at, look at this is before the fall before the fall by god's design work was to be a regular part of human life before the fall man will work for his food god provides the seed god provides the fertile soil god provides the rainfall rainfall and god brings forth the growth but the man Will till the soil, he will plant the seed, he will harvest the food, and he will eat so he can live. And to God, this arrangement is very good. Humanity was made to work. Work is good, work is life giving. Susan and I have this little saying, and I get one personal story every three months. Here's my personal story for every three months. Susan and I have this little saying, when either of us finishes a, um, when we accomplish a significant task from beginning to end, you know the feeling, we will grin and say to the other, I did a thing. And we, it's kind of an inside joke. We, we, We have this, there's a sense of satisfaction. We're we're doing what we are made for, and we accomplished a meaningful thing. We accomplished a meaningful task, and there is satisfaction in that. And all of us have that in us, deep within our nature, the pre fall nature. We know we are made to work, we know it that's why the most depressed people i know are the people who either don't have work to set their hands to or who will not work and there's that cycle i'm depressed so i can't work i'm depressed so i can't work and it just goes further and further and further the most troubled kids are kids who have too much time on their hands amen not enough meaningful contributing work 99 times out of 100, if a young man has a pornography problem or a video game problem, he's likely not working enough. If that's you, get a third job. Amen. Come on, somebody. (laughs) Thank you. If, If a young woman has a social media problem, she's probably got too much time on her hands. 1 Timothy teaches that, that gossiping and being a busybody is related to idleness. The idea there in 1 Timothy is that if a woman is not doing meaningful work, she will find some meaningless, worthless work to put herself to. That's just not, that's all of us. Correlation, now here's my qualification, Correlation is not always causation, right? Certainly there are heart issues involved in all of these situations, but the, por- the correlation is divinely revealed for us. God tells us there is a correlation between idleness and sin. And it's so consistent that it's repeated throughout the Proverbs and throughout the rest of Scripture. God made us to do meaningful work and subdue the earth. My instruction to you, do meaningful work. No matter how old you are or how young you are, if you're in school, if you're in the paid workforce right now, or if you're retired, there is something good and meaningful and life-giving that you can set your energy to to the glory of God. If you need help, Russ Akers, Is Russ here today, Russ will give you work to do. Russ had a government job, and so now he works harder in retirement than, <laughs> than he did then. And he works hard here at the church, and, and, and he can give you something to do to put your hands to. But this, the, the point here is put yourself to, to work. If you're struggling, put yourself to work. Now, I'll admit, um, getting back into the text, what we're seeing here in verse 5 is more of uh, of what I call an unrealized hypothetical. What do we mean by that than it is in actuality? Well, we never get to see what pre-fall, before the fall, work in the field was going to be like. So in verse 5, what I'm showing you here is that it was supposed to be. Well, it never came to fruition because of what happens in in chapter 3. But it also doesn't come to fruition because when the first man is brought into being, he isn't put in that field to till the field where is he put? he's brought out of that uncultivated field and he's brought into God's garden the garden that God had cultivated himself and yet even there in that garden in the paradise of God the place of God's rest and in unlimited joy for the man he's still commanded to work it and keep it we'll see that in, in just a minute but let's move on to verse 6 more description of what this uh, young, fertile earth looks like. A mist was going up from the land, was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, uh, the reason that it's described this way, the image that Moses is painting for us, is it's still a very wet earth, right? Only three days ago, according to the, the Scripture's calendar, only three, to go, three days ago, the land had risen up from the ocean, so the water is still running off, and there's still still a very humid, very misty, very steamy place. It's in that setting that God brings the man out of the earth. Now, let's look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, the, 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 the syntax here is a, is a little bit ambiguous. Uh, when I first read this, uh, and, and maybe for you too, the first image that comes to our minds is that God took a, a, a pile of dust from the ground. So think of what your broom sweeps into the dustpan, and then God makes man from that. that. That's not exactly what's being described. The man of dust is who Adam is. Sort of like son of man is who Jesus is, or the man from Nazareth, or David, the man after God's own heart. It's, it's his, think of man of dust as, as, as Adam's Bible nickname. Right To put it roughly, we know that Adam is the man of dust, because it says it in Genesis, but we also saw that in 1 Corinthians, when Mark read that for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. Second man is from heaven. And then Paul goes on, calling Adam the man of dust. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So, so think of man of dust uh, almost as, as a, uh, Adam's title. You can even hyphenate it if you want to, to to help clarify that in your mind. The title describes his nature, but it's his, it is his, his nickname in a way. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So that's where he's from. He's from the ground. That means not only are we of the dust in a sort of a title sort of sense, but Adam is literally from the earth. God took a clump of earth and formed the man. And that the Hebrew verb used to describe this process is the same verb that will be used again and again throughout scripture to describe a potter forming something from clay. It's a the forming here is a, a sculpting. So God is sculpting a man from a, a clump of mud. Remember, the earth is still moist, it's still wet. and then and then it gets even more intimate. The Lord God, and, and there's that Lord God, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So so here's your framework the man of dust is of the earth but the man of dust is given the spirit of life and that is the tension that is built into human nature in substance the stuff we're made of we are no different than the foxes of the field or the worms in the compost pile we are all All creatures, great and small, are all equally made out of earthy stuff. But in our form, we've been fashioned after God's image. And in our being, we have been breathed into by God with the breath of life. So when you think of who we are, don't think of only our substance. Think of our form and our being as well. If you think of only our substance... Well, there's a very, very influential philosopher named Peter Singer at Princeton University, atheist. Uh, Dr. Singer sees the substance, and he rightfully sees the substance that humanity is composed of. But then he ignores our form and our being. And because he ignores those things, he makes the conclusion that because we are of the same substance as all the other animals and creatures of the earth, it is, done, it is therefore unethical to prioritize human life over animal life. This is sort of the, the, the PETA analogy, or argument, rather. So, so animals cannot be a source of food for humans. And, and humans should not build buildings on land where bears or birds or gophers are currently living if those animals might be displaced. And you see that actually being lived out, that philosophy being lived out, especially in if you've tried to apply for a permit for a building <laughs> lately. Th- this, is, this is very much the, the, the ethos of the, the secular world. Singer is also one of the most outspoken scholars. Arguing for infanticide, infanticide, they mean the killing of babies, and for euthanasia. Why? Which is the killing of, of those uh, of, of, of humans who are not considered fit for life anymore? So for Singer, because there is no inherent value in the substance of a human being, our value must be either self-assessed, means it needs, needs to come from us, or it needs to be assigned from society. And so his argument is since a child, all the way up to, he would say the age of three, cannot assign to herself value, and if her family does not assign to her value, well, she's disposable. And a person with a terminal illness or who is. Reached an age where they're no longer contributing meaningfully, in his sense. If they are no longer adding substantial value to society, well, they're also disposable. You see the problem if you only look at our substance? But human value and human dignity, our worth, is not based in our substance. And it does not come from our own self-evaluation. And it does not come from society's evaluation. Our worth comes from who? It comes from God. We're made in his image. We're breathed into by his life-giving spirit. So friend, you have dignity because of who made you and how he made you. And you have worth and value because God has assigned value to you. But here's the thing, lest we think too highly of ourselves, we must never forget we are made of dust. Never forget. In and of ourselves, we are nothing. We're worms, we're foxes, we're dirt. Of dust we have been brought, to dust we shall return. That is the message of Psalm 90. I would encourage you this week in your quiet time to study and meditate Psalm 90. And here's what you will find. We are made of dust, undeniably. We are made of dust, but our value comes from the Lord. In ourselves, we are dust. We raise up quickly like the plants of the field. After all, we're made out of the same stuff as the plants of the field. We raise up, we dry up, we blow away. And friend, if you are trying to find satisfaction and meaning in that reality, you will be driven to despair. But in the Lord, we find our worth. The Lord is our joy. The Lord is our satisfaction. So the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 90 is this. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days and not despair. Let that be your prayer. Lord, let me be satisfied in you. Let me, because you are the only source of true and lasting joy, let me rejoice in the days that you've given me to live as I rejoice in you. Well, God sculpts the man of dust from earthy stuff. And then look what he does. Look at verse 8. The Lord God, there's that covenant name. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God makes the man, he puts him in the garden. What is this garden exactly? Let's examine that for a moment. Verse 8 tells us it's in the east. All right, So it's a true place, it's a real place. East is a relative directional, that relativity is to or from where Moses is writing. So Moses is in the promised land or near the promised land and he's thinking east of here is where that garden is. It's in the east. The garden is east of Israel. So verse nine tells us there's stuff there. There's numerous trees, fruit trees there, all brought forth by God. Look at verse nine. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So look at some of the language that uh, the Lord uses for us. All of these trees, every tree is pleasant to the sight. It means they're beautiful. It's a beautiful garden. And all of the trees are good for food. God did not give Adam that stinky fruit, whatever that's called. He gave them Food that is good. This is a place where the man will be well fed and where he will enjoy the meals that the Lord has given for him. God has provided beauty for the man to enjoy, He's provided food that tastes delightful for the man to enjoy. In fact, the word Eden means delight. This is the garden of delight. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are also there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But verse 10, let's talk more about where this place is and what it is. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. And then you look at verses 11 through 14, and you get the names of those rivers. And because of the names of these rivers, particularly the Tigris and the Euphrates, Moses is again telling his people that Eden is a place somewhere east of Israel. Israel. It's in the Middle East, and the garden is a subset of Eden. So you have Eden, wherever that is, and then the garden has a special place within Eden. And there's something else notable about this, though. The fact that there is a river, and just think with me about your own knowledge of the world. The fact that there's a river that starts in Eden and flows to the garden, and from the garden divides up and flows into four rivers, You're picturing it in your mind? Water flows downhill. That tells us Eden is high, higher than the garden. And the water from the garden continues to flow down. So the garden is also elevated. Water flows downhill from the garden. Ezekiel 28, in describing this garden of Eden, says that the garden is on the holy mountain of God. So that confirms this is a high place, it's on a mountain. But also tells us how the prophets understood Eden. It wasn't just a garden, it was the garden of the Lord. It wasn't just a high place, it was the holy mountain of God. This is the place where God chose to make his dwelling with his chosen people. In many ways, as we continue to read scripture, especially you'll see this in Exodus, those of you who are in Sunday school, the garden of Eden is like the tabernacle tabernacle that would be made under Moses' watch. That tabernacle was commissioned on the mountain of God when God entered into relationship with Moses and revealed to him his name. The garden is also like the temple that would be built by Solomon. Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, which is also called the holy mountain of God. The tabernacle and the temple are also similar to the Garden of Eden, and that there were trees in those structures, and the Holy of Holies in those structures, and those trees were representative of the trees in the garden, particularly the tree of life. So there's a, 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 a lampstand, the menorah there in, in the, the temple and in the tabernacle that was constructed like a tree, and it represented the tree of life. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, in the temple, were the dwelling places of God we see in Scripture, or spoken of metaphorically in that way. The midst of the garden is also the dwelling place of God. Next week, when we get to verses 18 and following, we'll see that the Lord God will bring all the animals to Adam, who is in the garden, so that Adam can name the animals. And Adam will carry out his his, his dominion as God's chosen king from that place. Well, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is also the place from where King David would reign and have dominion over the land. So, so we also see the future heavenly Jerusalem. When you get to Revelation 22, the future heavenly Jerusalem, which is also called the mountain of God, the true mountain of God, this is the place from where Christ will reign over all creation. So, so, so think of the garden as, in many ways, One, a very real place, it's given a location, but it's also the first temple, or like a temple. And this is important in our understanding of these next few verses. Verses 15 through 17. Now that we better understand what the garden is, we can better understand who Adam is. So the Lord God, covenant name, Lord God, took the man... Put him in the Garden of Eden to, look at the words, work it and keep it. It doesn't tell us exactly what the responsibility is there, but there is a sense of guarding that he's to do. We'll talk more about that in chapter 3. But this is the same responsibility. These are the same words used, same words that are given to the priests who have responsibility over the tabernacle. Exact same words are used. Look at Numbers 3 uh, verse 8. They, these priests, shall guard Samar, same word that we saw in, in uh, Genesis 2.15. They shall guard all the furnishing of the tent of the meeting and keep, guard, Samar, over the people of Israel as they minister or work, which is abod, at the temple. So they are to keep and work the same way that Adam was to keep and to work. That tells us that the priests in the temple or the tabernacle are echoing God's work or Adam's work in the garden but the analogy also goes the other way Adam has a priestly role in the garden you still with me because this might be new for some of you but this is very much uh, what the storyline of scripture is showing us in in revealing to us who Adam is we also know Israel's priests were entrusted with the word of God so was Adam we see this in verses 16 and 17 The Lord God commanded the man saying, and he's going to give him words, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam, priestly Adam, kingly Adam, is given the word of God directly. He's entrusted with the word of God to guard it, to keep it, teach it. In the garden that Adam is brought into, the presence of God, uh, uh, Adam has every delight available to him. In the garden is all that Adam could ever want or need. In the garden, Adam rules as God's priestly king who is to cherish the word of God and, and delight in the Lord and enjoy all that the Lord has provided for him. And so he will glorify God in living in obedience to God. If Adam is obedient, he will continue in the garden, and that means he will continue to have access to that tree of life. Now, the tree of life is important here, because in himself, Adam is not immortal. The man of dust is not immortal. Sometimes we mistakenly believe that Adam was created immortal, and then he lost his immortality and became mortal. That's not the case. 1 Timothy 6 says, God alone has immortality. Adam is the man of dust. He is not the man of heaven. He is not immortal. And yet, so long as he has access to the tree of life, he can live on and on. We see this after the fall. We'll get here in a few weeks, but Genesis 3.22 after the fall, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. The implication is we don't want that to happen. so We need to push him out of the garden. Ban him from the garden. Excommunicate him. So there's an understanding that even before he sinned, Adam is mortal. Eternal life is dependent on access to the tree of life. Access to the tree of life is dependent on obedience to God. The Spirit tells the church in Ephesus, in the book of Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear. But the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Then at the end of Revelation, when the heavenly city descends to earth, the tree of life is there in the midst of the city just like it was in the midst of the garden and there's 12 types of fruit there from eden onward the tree of life is always associated with the eternal life that god gives and this is why god says adam must not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil now what's the connection there because in the day he eats of that tree god says he will die well, to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is quite literally to seek wisdom, knowledge of good and evil, apart from the Lord's instruction. So, so the Lord has given as to Adam wisdom. He's given him his law, but there is another way to wisdom. To eat of it, though, is to depart from God's wisdom. And anything apart from the Lord, any sense of being... Outside of God is dust for the man. The man of dust returns to dust when he is apart from God. Obedience to God is to trust in God and know that wisdom comes from the Lord and from his word. Disobedience to God is to not trust in God and to seek wisdom in created things apart from God. See which one Adam chooses. Most of you already know. But on this subject, in order to better understand this knowledge of good and evil, there is a coming king, one from Adam's lineage, who will remember God is the source of the knowledge of good and evil. And God will bless this king with this discerning power. I bet you thought I was going to say, this is Jesus. No, it's not Jesus. Solomon is the promised son, whom the dominion, originally given to Adam, goes down the line to. Adam, to Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David, to Solomon. Solomon, when he inherits this dominion, when he inherits the kingdom, is blessed by God. And the Lord God goes to Solomon in a dream one night and says, he will grant him whatever he wants. And Solomon praises God and he thanks him. And then he says to the Lord, give your servant, therefore... An understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? As a king, Solomon knows he needs the knowledge of good and evil. Adam thought that too. But Adam went the wrong direction. He didn't seek the Lord for this. He didn't trust in the Lord for this. He went to the tree. Solomon is returning to the Lord. He's returning to the Lord because he knows the wisdom to discern good and evil and to rule, to have dominion with righteousness. He knows that comes from God alone. Adam was supposed to know that. He was supposed to trust that his ability to rule and discern good and evil would come from God alone. He was supposed to obey the word that God had given him. That was supposed to be his wisdom. Hence, the command was given to him, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord will provide this for you. As the Lord says in Proverbs 2, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Well, God is pleased that Solomon seeks him for wisdom, and God rewards Solomon with the knowledge of good and evil, and then some. He adds to that riches and honor. And then the Lord tells Solomon something remarkably similar to what he told Adam. Let me show you. Uh, Right after the Lord blesses Solomon with wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil and riches and honor, look what he says. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes. Same word, samar, that we saw back in Genesis 2. Keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. What was God's promise to Adam? Simply the same thing, right? Obey me, find your delight in me and live. Disobey me and die. Solomon is offered life if he will walk with the Lord and keep God's commands. Turns out Solomon is not satisfied with that. All that the Lord has provided to him, all the riches, all the honor, all the wisdom, Solomon wanted more. He failed like his father Adam. He could not keep God's statutes, nor did he delight in the Lord any better than Adam did. And so Solomon, like Adam, lost the kingdom. But as you track the Bible's storyline, now we get to Jesus, right? There's always this promise of a coming king greater than Adam greater than Solomon, and he will have the wisdom of the Lord, and he will delight in the Lord and all that the Lord has provided for him, and he will complete his work that the Lord has given to him, and he will enter into the Lord's rest. Isaiah 11 promises this king, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's descendancy. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Here's the fruitfulness, Genesis 1. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What spirit? The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is the one. This is the one whom God's people anticipated would be the Christ. The one who because he had been given the spirit of wisdom and understanding, would not look outside of the Lord, outside of God's wisdom, to gain it. He would be satisfied in what the Lord had given him. He would trust God's word. He would keep God's word and walk in his statutes. And he would rule, as the good king was supposed to, under God's authority, not in himself, but as God's anointed and appointed ruler. And friends, Jesus is this king. Jesus is this promised king. That's the gospel. This is the good news. He is our hope. He is our source of eternal life. We come into the world, men and women, of the dust. Flesh and blood cannot, could not inherit the kingdom of God. We could not inherit eternal life. We needed a new man. We needed a new man to inherit eternal life for us. We needed the man born of a woman who came from Adam, but we also who was also the man born of the Spirit, who is God himself. We needed the man of heaven. And so the Lord provided for us his own son, the man of heaven, born of a woman. And he fulfilled those promises of the one who was to come and be this great and wise and righteous king, trusting in the Lord in all his ways. In Christ, this one, the love of God our Father for us is made known to us. Because all the while, the Lord knows our frame. As the psalmist says, he knows we are dust. He knows that we, like Adam, cannot live in obedience to him. So the Lord provided us one who could and who would. And the Lord gives us the spirit to cause us to be born again. And he breathes life into us a second time. Because we need not just life, but we need new life. And the Spirit unites us to Christ in faith. And this new life that we are given is a life fashioned not after the man of dust, but after the man of heaven. And so living in Him, being united to Him, walking in Him, we are given eternal life. In him, we eat of the tree of life forever. That's the gospel. That's the good news that is true in Christ, the true king, the second Adam. Amen? Let's praise God for what he has given us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you that we do not have to despair as being people of dust, but can rejoice That you have sent us the man of heaven, your man, Son of Man, Son of God, who gives us access to life. Lord, help us to trust in Him and not in ourselves, for you know our frame. You know that we are weak. In Christ we are strong. Lord, make us strong in Christ. Give us righteousness in Christ. Teach us obedience in Christ. Let our hope be in him. In Christ's name.